Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and it's the last full week of October. So all you longtime listeners out there, you know what that means. It's time for our annual Haunted DC show. Where we spend an entire hour investigating the hair raising, the spine tingling, the blood curdling, and the potentially otherworldly stories of life in the Washington region. We'll take you to Annapolis, Maryland, where we'll visit the ghostly types who may be strolling the city's streets. Well, first of all, as far as I know, there's no demonic entity in town that's going to try to suck your soul down to hell. And we'll chat with actors at a haunted forest tourist attraction and hear what it's like to spend all day scaring the bejeebies out of visitors. I almost remove the human element from my thoughts and keep it very primal. First, though, we'll visit a place that's definitely not a tourist attraction, though it may very well be haunted. At least that's what this woman would say. I think it is a ghost or a haunting spirit that chooses to stay here. And this woman. Yeah, a lot of times I say, okay, I I can tell you're here. As long as you're nice, you can stay. (laughs) And this woman. The whole time I'm here, I get creeped out because it just feels like somebody is watching you. The place we're talking about is an old log cabin in Hume, Virginia, a town in Fauquier County where wounded Civil War soldiers used to come for treatment. And it's in this very log cabin that I meet the three ladies you just heard. The cabin's previous owner, Heather Freeman. I lived here from 2002 to 2006. The current owner, Darlene Felton. It felt like grandma's house. When we got here, we just instantaneously wanted to lay down and take a nap. And Warrington, Virginia resident, Carrie Ann Behrens. I'm good friends with Darlene, and she boards my horse here. Have you been here as a house sitter? Yes. And as a house sitter, Carrie-Anne's had her share of, how shall we say, curious incidents in the nighttime? Like when Darlene and her husband went on their first long vacation in like five years. And it was kind of hot in here when I came home after I fed the horses. So I went out all over the house and I opened up windows. So I fell asleep on the couch and I woke up and it was like midnight and I was getting ready to go upstairs and I went to go shut the windows and they were already shut. So needless to say, I didn't sleep all night. (laughs) Or the time she did sleep all night, but upon rising, she found something a bit off about the shelf of figurines at the bottom of the stairs. I went to go to bed one night, and as I was walking past the horse figurines, the one carousel horse was knocked over. So I picked it up, and I leaned it up against another horse. And then when I came down in the morning, it was upside down. Carrie Ann says she always hesitated to tell Darlene these stories. But it turns out the women have actually shared some enigmatic experiences of an olfactory nature. Every so often, I get like a whoof of this tacky smell. This very, very strong, flowery, like a tacky, flowery, Avon-type perfume. perfume. Carrie-Anne has smelled the perfume outside. It was like somebody sprayed it, like, right in front of me. And Darlene in her upstairs bedroom. Like someone sprayed it in your face. Now, Darlene and Carrie-Anne may be the only ones who say they've smelled perfume. But they're not the only ones to say they've heard... And this is where I always hear the footsteps. Always in here. Creaking. Okay, hear the creaking? Yeah. We both just walk across... As we walk around upstairs, Heather Freeman recalls a night when her husband, Scott, woke her up with his snoring. Unable to resume her sleep, Heather left the master bedroom and went across the hall to the guest room. So the door was shut like this, and I'm lying in the bed, and I hear this. It sounds just like this. 
coming down the hall. And I said, Scott, is that you, Scott? And they, they just kept coming. And it would slow down, and it would keep coming. And then I heard this exact sound. And the door. It's very hard to open. Opened. At which point, snoring be damned, Heather scampered back to Scott and didn't get up till morning. Heather also tells about the time she had someone watching over the cabin while she and Scott were away. And we had a beautiful mirror over the fireplace mantel. And she said one night she heard a huge crash. And the mirror wasn't just laying flat as if it had fallen off the wall. It was clear on the other side of the room, smashed up where the sofa was. And there was no way that it falling, it could have winded up over there. Talk about things going bump, or in this case, crash in the night. But here's the thing about that corner where the mirror ended up. Wrong chair, right corner. This is Elizabeth LeBlanc. She accompanied me to the log cabin, where I spoke with her independently of Heather, Darlene, and Carrie Ann. Elizabeth didn't want to know too much about the house or the women's experiences, since she describes herself as an intuitive advisor, specializing in spirit and animal communication. And it seems she's communicating with the former right now, as she sits in a corner of the living room, gazing out at the fenced-in swimming pool in the yard. This was a favorite corner, but it's like the person, with all due respect, doesn't want to look at the view because it's changed so much. It seems like everything's just in the way. Elizabeth gets this same message, this same feeling, when we visit the master bedroom upstairs, the one where Darlene Felton smelled that flowery perfume. It's like a cantankerous man who's saying... I built this house, I put this together, I whatever. So I think it would be hard to feel like it was yours as much as he's indicating to me if you didn't have a hand in the making of it. And he's very particular about how it's kept. Records do indicate the cabin has changed a ton since it was built, presumably in the 19th century. Sun porches have been tacked on, staircases have been taken away. The room we're currently in, just above the living room, was added several tenants ago. Prior to that, the living room was two stories high. And from what Elizabeth is sensing, this cantankerous man isn't exactly delighted with the changes. But who listens to him anyway? Except when he works to get their attention. And I'm not really sure what he does, but I think when he wants your attention, he gets your attention. And he's certainly gotten the attention of Darlene Felton, Heather Freeman, and Carrie-Ann Behrens. When we all sit down at the kitchen table, this time joined by Elizabeth LeBlanc, the women share even more instances of slightly um, disrupted living. Or as Heather Freeman attests, disrupted moving in. The moving van broke down on the way here. It was a late fall, heading into winter. And when we got here, the, the home inspector missed that they had the gas furnace hooked up incorrectly. And so the gas was pouring into the house. But get this, she isn't the only one whose move-in seemed cursed. If you ask Darlene about her move-in day, she responds (laughs) with one of those laugh-so-you-don't-cry chuckles. One of the movers wasn't careful with the upstairs bathroom, and we ended up losing the kitchen ceiling (laughs) because it overflowed. And all of our boxes were here in the kitchen, so it was like Niagara Falls on all of our boxes. Now, whether all these accidents and aromas and inexplicable bumps, crashes, and creaks actually are the work of a cantankerous guy with a get-off-my-lawn attitude, well, the truth is, we'll probably never know. But in the meantime, while Carrie Ann still feels a bit 
iffy about the cabin, especially sleeping in it. I started taking Benadryl at night. (laughs) (laughs) Heather Freeman says it feels good to visit the place. I never had any encounters where I feared for my life with a ghost. I did have a, a fright, but it's a charming house. And as for Darlene Felton? Carry-on is like, I don't know how you live here. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not afraid. I guess if I was afraid, I'd leave, but not afraid yet. Why aren't you afraid? I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I, I guess you'd be more afraid if you didn't believe in it. I know that sounds backwards, but, you know, I definitely believe in that kind of thing. Okay, so let's say our crotchety guy in the log cabin actually does exist. If so, Heather Freeman and Darlene Felton pretty much seem to think that ultimately, you know, he's harmless. But the man we'll meet next has had a more dramatic and a much more scary experience with the otherworldly. Growing up in Canton, Ohio in the early 1980s, Eric Newsom became convinced he was haunted by a little girl in a blue dress. His anxiety over this haunting ended with Newsom in a psychiatric ward. Decades later, Newsom has told the tale in a new book, Giving Up the Ghost. He recently talked with Kavitha Cardoza about how he confronted his fear of ghosts. I do want people to understand that this little girl was very, very real to you. Could you read a little excerpt from your book? It starts when you talk about a man in a wolf's costume pointing you to a path. As I enter the path, I can see her outline in the moonlight. I step closer and I start to see detail. A little girl in a blue dress. She's wet, like she's been in water. She's staring right at me, eyes wide, cold, and dark. When I'm only a few steps from her, she starts yelling at me. It sounds like gibberish. She never moves, never takes her eyes away from mine. As I come closer, she seems more and more irritated and frantic. When she's at the point of screaming so loud that she's shaking, I wake up. What was going on? Well, I would wake up. Often I would be sitting up when I woke up and be looking around this room in total pitch blackness and seeing swirls of something, which is just my eyes adjusting to the darkness, having this disoriented feeling, and would be convinced that I'd had that dream because she was in that room somewhere. And I would, in my mind, justify anything I saw unusual or something that felt like movement, that was her. And the attic was divided into two rooms, and I was in one room, and I was convinced she was in the other. And the door of that room was always kept closed. I felt if I exited my room to go downstairs, that then she would have the advantage and be able to open the door and get me and do whatever she wanted to do to me. So I would basically sit there and stare at that door. I would routinely stay in my room for a a full day. I mean, I never come out. The book is also about your relationship with Laura, a childhood friend who helped you through this time. But also by deciding not to be friends or not to continue being friends, she pushed you into turning your life around. And she died in an accident a few years later. Yeah, the dreams with the little girl. I never had any after Laura died. I don't remember having any. She at one time saved me from my imaginary ghost and became a a real one in my life. I never saw her floating around or heard her or felt her presence. 
but she's been part of my life ever since. When reading the book, I was so surprised to read all these kind of gut-wrenching passages about how that time seems to have haunted you, because you seem like such a happy chap. And it made me wonder about all the demons people carry about that we don't see. And one of my favorite lines in the book is, life isn't neat and binary and clean. Life is messy and troubled and leaves ghosts in its wake. I would have two responses to your question about me. One is oftentimes comedy is tragedy plus time. So maybe kids look at the same thing about happiness. I think that a, a version of me definitely died in the course of this story. And the second thing I would say is I'm, I'm a happy person because I keep my life very much in context. If you look around this room, a couple places you'll see little skulls. Like a little, there's one over that there, there's one up on that shelf. I keep that motif around me a lot because I want to be reminded of where I've been. A skull is a reminder of death to me, and it keeps me focused on living. When I entered the room, my eyes were immediately drawn to your very happy-looking baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which is also something I keep around, too. I was in a race to finish it before my son was born so that I could be a better father. One of the main reasons I wrote this book was to let go of it. Um, this has been something I had been keeping inside of myself and festering this whole story for... 20-some years, and I wasn't succeeding in eliminating it. You can imagine my wife's reaction to reading this when she was six months pregnant, not really knowing all these stories. Like, what have I gotten myself into? It's like a manual for how this kid's going to eventually rebel against us. <laughs> to understand your fears, you visit places including the battlefields of Gettysburg and Clinton Road in New Jersey, places where lots of people have claimed to see ghosts. And you keep shifting between rationally being able to explain that there could be many possible explanations for, say, spirit orbs, and yet being convinced that there was something out there that couldn't be explained. Do you believe in ghosts now? I believe if you think that there's a building that contains some floaty thing inside of it that comes out when people are in there at night, that that doesn't exist. I think people are haunted. I think people are haunted by their pasts, their regrets, things that have happened. And sometimes they'll go sit in a dark space in a place that feels creepy or unfamiliar, and you're sitting there alone with your thoughts, and things come out in you, not the place. And I think that's real. How do you make peace with your past, your hauntings? Well, my current tactic is to talk about them very publicly, (laughs) which is both a completely crazy and uncomfortable. My my, my family has has a lot of trouble with this. They think it's going to damage my reputation or people's impressions of me. And my feeling has been that by telling the story, I get to stop trying to suppress it in my own life. When I tell it, I'm really being honest about me. Even though it's a crazy story and there are crazy elements to it, it's the only story I have. That was Eric Newsom, who's now a vice president of programming at NPR. He's also author of the new memoir, Giving Up the Ghost. He spoke with WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza. You can find an extended version of this interview on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, what it's like to have professional ghoul on your resume. Nothing is more exciting than watching somebody jump or scream or get terrified. 
That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we're bringing you our annual Haunted DC show. And thus far, we've heard some very personal ghost stories, tales told by people who encountered the otherworldly right in their own homes. But now we're going to shift gears a bit and hear about people who pay good money to be scared away from home. This month, a record number of Americans, more than 42 million Americans, are expected to visit some sort of haunted house for Halloween. And these businesses will rake in about $1 billion. We'll have like three to 4,000 people on our busiest nights. So it's a, it's a huge moneymaker. It does, it does very, very well. Matt Markoff and his two brothers operate Markoff's Haunted Forest, one of the D.C. region's longest-running haunts, now in its 20th year of professional scaring. Last year, ticket sales brought in more than half a million dollars, money the brothers use to fund a nonprofit that does outdoor education. But like many Halloween fanatics, they say their business isn't really about raising money or turning a profit. No, it's about uh, scaring people, scaring people silly. Jacob Fenston went to Poolsville, Maryland, to talk with some of the ghosts and ghouls behind the scenes. And he sent us this audio postcard. My name is Paul Brubacher. I'm the vice president of operations for Markoff's Haunted Forest. Right now, we have a little bit of managed chaos going on. Uh, within the next hour and a half, we will have between 60 and 100 actors just getting hustled through. It's about a five-minute-per-actor process of getting their costume and then another five minutes for the makeup. More blood or less blood? Do you want a lot? Yeah. Not, not so much tonight. Not so much tonight? Right you think that? All right. Don't worry, I can do that. I'm just adding the blood, giving a nice head wound, and making his nose bleed a bit. We use a lot of dark colors around the eyes, so it gives that really sinking look and death and decay. That's his bullet hole from being shot. I got shot. The management staff right now is checking electrical systems in the woods, air pressure is making sure all the props work, everything is ready to go. Propane gas is being turned on for all the things that go boom. A couple hours beforehand, everybody's running with their heads cut off. All right, trail two, you ready? If you don't know where you're going, stay here. If you do, get in the woods and have fun. You know what that is. It's dueling banjos from Deliverance. I'll be back to check on you. I'll be through before uh, before they start lighting. The electricity is not working in this little room. The electricity, the chandelier is not working. Uh, my name is Keenan Futz Smith, and uh, I've been doing haunted forest scaring for the past seven years now. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm Victor Viseri. V-I-S-S-A-R-I. I started back in, I think, seventh grade, volunteering. Uh, my older cousin introduced me, and I, I just fell in love. It just got me hooked. And then they started paying me, and that was the point of no return. Tonight I am dressed up as a deranged hillbilly, and uh, from the looks of my scene, apparently the character that I'm portraying enjoys ripping the faces off of people. Well, it is a big adrenaline rush, because you, you're scaring people, they don't know you're there. <laughs> 
being obsessed with horror movies and being obsessed with scaring people and knowing that you're good at it, it's like you get a thrill after seeing someone freak out. It's almost like an ego boost. It's uh, like some people skydive, some people do base jumping, some people go mountain climbing, and I scare people. My name's Chuck Farkas. My character is a snake, and my costume is pretty basic. It has a snake pattern to it. My head is painted, looks like a snake. My face looks like a snake. My arms look like a snake. Um, there's flowing pieces of fabric off of me, so when I move, you don't really see me. My only real strategy is to not only get as in character as I can, but get as out of me as I can. I almost remove the human element from my thoughts and keep it very primal. I look for people that are either hiding behind somebody or they turn their head as soon as they start to see me or think they start to see something. Those are the ones you know you're going to get good screams out of. I wasn't trying to scare anybody. I didn't... I feel I'm good at scaring people because I do a lot of voice acting mostly. I do a whole lot of voices that just freak people out because they don't expect it to come out of me because I'm, I'm a lanky dude and I'll come out with a sling blade type of really deep voice or when I do my clown drag, I will do a really high pitch voice and all of a sudden fluctuate right back down to really low. Don't be such a nervous Nelly. I'm going to cut you in your belly. Some people, they find out that they really don't want to be scared. Yes, I'm right here. I've seen guys that are 6'5", 300 pounds, quiver on the ground and scream like schoolgirls. They're breathing super shallow. You might hear a quick sob. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, you'll feel sorry for them. You can maybe ask if they want to leave. You escort them off the trail or make them pee their pants. Why else would you come if you didn't want to be scared? And if we're not scaring you, it's because we're not doing our job. Those were actors, makeup artists, and staffers at Markoff's Haunted Forest in Poolsville, Maryland, speaking with WAMU's Jacob Fenston. From Poolsville, we head east now to Annapolis, a city that is brimming with history. But um, here's the thing about that history. A few long-deceased residents of Maryland's state capital seem to refuse to remain in the past, at least according to Mike Carter and Julia Dre. They're co-authors of a new book called Haunted Annapolis, Ghosts of the Capital City. Carter and Dre met with Jonathan Wilson to discuss the apparitions haunting Annapolis. And let's just say our usually intrepid reporter was glad they met while the sun was still up. Mike Carter is the founder of the Annapolis Ghost Tour, which he's been running for 10 years now. He says tourgoers often fall into one of two camps, eager paranormal enthusiasts or outright skeptics of anything supernatural. First and foremost, and I think it's extremely relevant, is I am a skeptic. Uh, that, I believe, is what makes our tour so great, is because I view it through a skeptic's eye. But Carter says there are also a few potential customers who fall into another category, those who are simply scared. Carter remembers one man seriously concerned that a ghost would follow him home. And this is a big man, had to be 6'4", six, 6'5", six, probably 300 pounds, uh, and, and was terrified of the idea of a ghost following him home. And can you give him a guarantee that that won't happen? 
We make no promises or guarantees of any kind when it comes to the paranormal. With that feeble reassurance out of the way, my 5'8", 175-pound self asks Carter and Julia Dre, one of his tour guides and his co-author on Haunted Annapolis, about the ghost of Mary Reynolds, a well-known 18th-century hostess who is said to still haunt the Reynolds Tavern on Church Circle. The tavern building has gone through several incarnations over the past few centuries, serving as a boarding house, a bank, and then a public library. And then in the 1980s, they renovated it, reopened it as a tavern, and they got themselves an invisible assistant manager along with the deal. She's, uh, to this day, uh, involved in running the business. She'll expose employees who are stealing by dropping their stolen goods. One guy had a backpack strap break, and it hit the floor, and when it burst open, all the frozen filet mignons he'd popped in there weren't flying all over the room. And Reynolds' ghost is watching more than just employees. She keeps an eye on the uh, visiting guests as well. If you get drunk and disorderly, she'll shut you down any number of ways by spilling your drink in your lap, to dropping other people's food on you, to locking you in the bathroom. From the Reynolds Tavern, we move to the Maryland State House, famous for having the largest wooden dome built without nails in the country. It's a dome that played a role in bringing Annapolis the ghost of Thomas Dance. Dance was a plasterer who worked on the dome, but suffered a fatal fall 87 feet to the marble floor below in 1793. He said to haunt the building not because he died here, and we don't know whether he slipped, pushed, or the scaffolding collapsed, um, but he's here because the contractor in charge of the building project kind of took advantage of his uh, family, um, denying the widow and children the payment of a pension and some outstanding salary, as well as confiscating Mr. Dance's working tools, which meant his sons now had no profession. Dre says Dance's ghost is blamed for lights flashing on and off, doors opening and closing, and every once in a while, blasts of cold air strong enough to knock a person down. Dance is also the most oft-spotted ghost in Annapolis, sometimes seen walking on top of the state house at night, and even seen at times inside the building. People usually assume that he's a tour guide or a reenactor or a living history person, and will go to the security desk and say, hey, how do I get in the tour? What's the living history event? Do you know that there is a reenactor in the dome who's smoking a pipe? And with just two tales of haunted Annapolis history, Carter and Dre have piqued my interest. Carter says that's what his ghost tour aims to do, make history come alive, or at least undead. To me, I believe that the paranormal side of it humanizes the history. Because we're talking about real people who have, in a way, become immortal. But back to that idea of simply being scared confession time. While I don't spend much time at all thinking about ghosts and ghouls, I'm not at all interested in wandering through a spooky Annapolis tavern alone at night. Horror movies are not my thing, and darkness is only something I like if I'm trying to fall asleep. So... I'd probably be scared to go on your tours. I guess I'm admitting that on radio, and that's, uh, you know, I'll have to live with that. But um, how do you convince someone like me, uh, who is a little afraid, but maybe interested in the history, why should someone like me go on your tour? Well, first of all, as far as I know, there's no demonic entity in town that's going to try to suck your soul down to hell. All right, so let's just get that out of the way. Hmm. As far as she knows, I guess that will have to do. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Haunted Annapolis, Ghosts of the Capital City, is available now from the History Press. To see photos of Mike Carter and Julia Dre at some of Annapolis's more haunted spots, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
Time now for the final story in our month-long series of interviews from the StoryCorps booth in Arlington, Virginia. Gene No and his wife, Christina, had their first child, Gabrielle, 15 months ago. Seven months after she was born, Jean had to leave for a tour of duty in Afghanistan with the Air Force. Jean just returned home, and he and Christina recently sat down to talk about the challenges of caring for a baby when a parent is away. You just recently, about three weeks ago, returned from serving in Afghanistan. When you left, Gabby was about seven months old, and now she's about 15 months old. And I just wonder um, how you think that has impacted your experience as a parent. Uh, in terms of being a parent, I think it was a challenge because now she had, she's gotten to that point where she can talk and she she's so dependent on you and she so you're her comfort zone. And, and I wasn't. I was a stranger that was reintroduced into her life. I mean, that first week where she would just run to you. <laughs> if I tried to hold her, she would cry. It was, it was really challenging, you know, and confirmed, you know, that that desire I had when I was overseas where, you know, I don't I don't want to be away, you know, it's, it's really hard. But at the same time, I'm thankful that, you know, she's so young, she won't remember me being gone at this mm-hmm. point in her lives. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm very thankful that you took care of her so well while I was gone. I know it's not easy. Mm, yeah. But, I mean, now that it's been about three weeks, it definitely seems like she's taken to you. She, I, I catch her napping on you. Um <laughs> Every day, basically, at this point. So it's that's fun for me to see, you know. And I mean, w- while you were gone, we tried to um, show her pictures and um, video clips, if I had them, of you. And I would always say Appa because, you know, Appa is Korean for daddy. And I'd always say, Appa, this is Appa. You know, this is the guy. So that when you came home, there would be less of a bumpy transition, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I was like so awesome because she started saying appa and I really was like fixated on this whole having appa be her first word thing so I didn't teach her any other words <laughs> this whole time I just taught her appa and she was saying it and she was pointing to pick your picture and she'd always be like appa appa and then we were preparing for your arrival again and there were these pictures of other people in other people's <laughs> houses and she would just point to pictures of other people and say, Appa, Appa. And I realized what I had done was teach her that pictures were Appa when really it's you. <laughs> I guess maybe you can backtrack a little bit and talk about what it was like while I was gone being a mother, you know, a single mother for the first time, you know, geographically separated. You know, honestly, it was difficult in the sense that I missed you. Um, and I knew you were missing some parts of her growing up, you know, like just silly things like crawling, you know, and pulling herself up and that sort of thing. But I think about it um, as my own mom was a single mom, an immigrant, and she had three of us. And I just think about how lucky I was that, you know, it was a choice for me to be able to stay home with her and have this grand adventure with her while you were gone. Um, And it was challenging, of course, at times. But that is like small potatoes. You know, when I think about the struggles that other people have and that my own mom had, you know, it was not super easy. But at the same time, we had so many great moments that I just wish that you had been able to be a part of, you know. But I don't know. (laughs) So it's been great. And I want to thank you and tell you I love you. Yeah, I want to thank you and tell you I love you and your love is so strong.
That was Jean and Christina No at the StoryCorps booth in Arlington, Virginia. StoryCorps is the oral history project that gives Americans the chance to record, share, and preserve the stories of their lives. And if you'd like to hear previous interviews in our StoryCorps series, you can find them at metroconnection.org. After the break, we give up the ghost, or take it to task anyway, on our monthly feature, The Location. It was the one room that has ever given me a little bit of pause. Okay, now she confesses. (laughs) It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you a very special trick and treat our annual Haunted DC show. Earlier in the hour, we strolled through Haunted Annapolis and met a group of actors whose job is to creep you out. And in just a bit, we'll explore a photo exhibit about a town that once attracted Hollywood starlets and is now more or less a ghost town. First, though, it's our regular series, The Location. In which Kim Bender, author of the blog The Location, helps us explore the hidden history of Washington's places, people, and culture. And this week, we return to a location we visited in 2011 on our Feeling the Heat show. Well, hello. Hello, Kim Bender. Welcome to the Heyrich House Museum. Thank you. The Heyrich House, also known as the Brewmaster's Castle, is located just off DuPont Circle in northwest D.C. Christian Heyrich, the German-born beer magnate who built the place, was a total pyrophobe. So his house was the first fireproof residence in Washington. These days, Kim Bender directs the Heyrich House Museum which, I gotta tell you, is beautiful. But I'm not gonna lie, it's also kind of spooky. I mean, you've got this enormous Victorian mansion where the Hayek family lived from 1894 to 1956, and the place is immaculately preserved with its original furniture, carpets, light fixtures, and yet, says Kim Bender... I do not think that this house is haunted. Obviously, because it's dark in here, it's an old Victorian, there's lots of woodwork, the shutters are closed, and it gives a little bit of a spooky vibe people always ask, is it haunted? And I think they really want it to be, but it's not. (laughs) But there are sort of still some stories here that have to do with superstitions, supernatural. Well, so just because I don't think it's presently haunted doesn't mean that there are not some really interesting Halloween-appropriate stories to tell. We can start off looking to our left over here to the reception room, Mm -hmm. where Mr. and Mrs. Hyrick would spend a lot of their time. It was like their den. And they actually were spiritualists, which meant that they would have seances at the house with a medium in the reception room. Do we have any stories of of who they reached out to? Well, the one story I I really know in detail is that Mr. and Mrs. Hyrick were having a seance in the reception room. And the medium said that she was in contact with Matilda, who was Mr. Hyrick's second wife, who had died in the house. And um, she apologized to Christian for breaking a vase and blaming it on the servant. And then all these years, she has felt so guilty that the servant got blamed for breaking this. And Christian Hyrick would have been the only person who knew the other side of that story. And it meant something to him. It made sense to him. So... Maybe Matilda came and gave him a message just to clear her conscience. Hmm. And he was doing this with the third Mrs. Hyrick, who was Amelia. Amelia. His first and third wives were actually Amelia. 
Um, in, in name. In Not name. the same woman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the first Mrs. Hyrick was with him when he purchased the land that this house is built on. And she died of pneumonia soon after. Six years after Matilda, the second wife, died, he married another Amelia, who was the first Amelia's niece. <laughs> we can go in here. I, I remember something else. Okay, so now we're in the Echoey Conservatory. And... There's a fountain that's made of marble, and it has etched on the top an angel baby. Now, that was Anna Marguerite, who was the Hyrick's daughter who died when she was nine months old. So this is a memorial fountain to her. Yeah, did she die in this house? She didn't. She died on their farm, which was called Belmont, and it was in Prince George's County, actually on the site of the Prince George's Plaza. Does anyone talk about the baby haunting this house? I mean, I've heard people who say they used to work here and they heard the baby's cries. And I have to be honest, I don't believe it because the funny thing about this building is that even though it's made of concrete and steel and it sort of protects the sound, if people walk by the house, you can actually hear them. So I'm sure that that's what happened. Debunking the myths. (laughs) (laughs) So where, where shall we go next? I think we're going to debunk some more haunted Hyrick house myths. So we can go up to the second floor, which is the living quarters, and also has the bedroom where anyone who has died in this house, they died in this bedroom. If I'm going to be truly honest, it was the one room that has ever given me a little bit of pause. In okay, house. now she confesses. <laughs> so let's go on up. So here we are in the master bedroom. This is the room where Mr. Hyrick died when he was 102, almost 103. And it's the room where Mrs. Hyrick, Amelia, died in 1956. And you're saying this room did give you a bit of pause when you first started working here. I think of every room in the house, this is the one where I might feel something. (laughs) So we've seen several rooms at this point and you've told stories that, you know, border on the supernatural and superstitious, but not so much ghostly. And yet I know when I walk by this house, I see other people walking by this house and I'm sure they're talking amongst themselves saying, what is that big scary thing? There've got to be ghost stories in there. It's like it could be a haunted house because it's so dark and Victorian. I mean, we can't discount some of the things that happened. Not every family had seances in their front reception room, but I think this house has a peaceful feeling. And I really think the stories about it being haunted that anybody has ever experienced are not really, have never been proven to me. And I've been here for two years. And my predecessor was here for almost six years and and he actually lived in the building and he never experienced anything. So I'm going to stick with that story until something proves otherwise. Well, Kim Bender, thank you as always for taking the time to uh, show me around another location. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for coming by. Want to decide for yourself whether the Hyrick House is haunted? You can take a free guided tour on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. We have more information along with photos of the old Victorian home on our website. MetroConnection.org.
So we've all heard of ghost towns, right? Well, the town we'll be talking about next could kind of qualify as just that. It's called Almeria, and though it's way off on the southern coast of Spain, chances are you've probably seen it. During the 1960s and 70s, Almeria was host to dozens of filmmakers and movie stars. Whether a director wanted rolling dunes, desert mountains, or a rocky coastline, Almeria always fit the bill. Photographer Mark Perescandola has family roots in southern Spain, and 50 years after the filmmaking boom there, he's introducing D.C. to Almeria with a new exhibit at the Embassy of Spain. Emily Berman, formerly known as Emily Friedman, congrats on the wedding, Emily, (laughs) brings us the story. There's this scene in Lawrence of Arabia when the city of Aqaba is attacked. But what you see isn't really Aqaba. It's Almeria. Well, so Lawrence of Arabia was one of the first big productions. And uh, David Lean and his crew had been filming in Jordan, and basically it got too expensive. Uh, Spain at the time was cheap, labor was cheap. And it was after that that a lot of other um, uh, directors started to come. Uh, All of uh, Sergio Leone's early uh, spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood were filmed there. Patton, Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor. For most of the 20th century, Paris Condola says... Almeria was one of the poorest regions in Spain. When Hollywood directors started showing up in the 1960s and 70s, everyone got excited that their little coastal town could be something more. They thought that they were going to be the Hollywood of Europe. Big-name actors passed through there, uh, Sean Connery, Claudia Cardinal, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, many of them multiple times making different films. For many European directors, it was cheaper to film in Spain than to go to the American West. You had in Almeria 360 days of sunshine a year, um, and then, of course, these incredible landscapes, which really look like you're in Southern California or in Nevada somewhere. Thousands of people went to work making costumes and building sets. Paris Gondola photographed one of the most iconic sets called Mini Hollywood, which was built for the Leone film A Few Dollars More. For a set built in the mid-60s, it's in pretty good shape. Paris Condola explains that's because it's not just an old set. It's a business. And they do every day, they do a few of these Western shows where they reenact an episode that could have been in a film, you know, with a gunfight and all that. What you hear is an actual scene from one of the reenactments. It's from a video Paris Condola shot while working on this photo series. Typically, he says, there's a bank robbery, then the sheriff shows up, and then there's a gunfight. There's always uh, a scene with a hanging. There, hanging? Yeah, yeah it's a hanging, yeah. Pretty much everyone ends up dead in the end. And the tourists love it. They do, yes. Paris Condola documents crumbling historic buildings used as bad guy hideouts. The desert sun gives these old painted shacks a technicolor glow. One print hanging in the exhibition at the Embassy of Spain shows a giant hotel abandoned midway through construction. This is the exact spot, he says, where the crew of Lawrence of Arabia built the city of Aqaba. How did this era in Almeria's history and this, these events impact the town, just in terms of the, this culture of Almeria and the spirit of the people there? Many people in Almeria got involved in working on the films in some way or other. So it certainly did affect them. Many of the people who remember that time are now gone. There's a danger of it being lost. The province's boom years were short-lived. After about two decades of jobs, money, and movie stars, all these things began to slip away. By the late 70s, 
westerns weren't as popular as they used to be. In the 80s, Steven Spielberg shot Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade there. But other than that, apart from the occasional music video or car commercial, Almeria is pretty much a ghost town. Except for the occasional run-in with a local. So one day I was uh, at, taking photographs at the set from the Condor, and a uh, fellow shows up with a rifle, uh, pointing his rifle at me, and I just said, I'm taking photographs. And he said, uh, podemos darte un tiro, which you know, means we could shoot you. That's funny that you almost became a character in one of these westerns. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I felt at the time, yes. He stepped away from the man, a little frightened, he says, but also quite pleased to see the gunslinging, rough-and-tumble spirit lives on, long after Hollywood walked away. I'm Emily Berman. You can view Once Upon a Time in Almeria at the Embassy of Spain through November 14th. And you can check out some of Mark Periscandola's photographs on our website. That's metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Brunswick, Maryland, and Tara Leeway Heights in Arlington, Virginia. My name is Kathy Heinsen, and I am 50 years old. I live in Brunswick, Maryland. Brunswick is a small town that is located at the confluence of the state lines of Maryland, Virginia, and West Virginia, right where the Potomac River meets the edges of all of those states. It was founded by an Indian trader in 1720. Brunswick actually was not first known as Brunswick. It's had many names. Initially, it was called Coxman's Rest. And finally, it ended up with the name Berlin prior to the late 1800s because there were a lot of German immigrants. When the B&O Railroad came in in the 1890s, one of the officials suggested a fancier name and came up with the name Brunswick. Brunswick was called the Paris on the Potomac because the railroad was so active and everything thriving at that time that you got big band acts coming through here. And then you had lots of merchandise coming from New York, so the latest fashions. And then it hit a bit of a decline in the 1950s and 60s when the B&O Railroad started to pull out. We still have quite an active set of galleries and antique shops and small town cafes. Coming up um, the first Sunday in November, November 4th, is one of the very few remaining Veterans Day parades in Maryland. And as I understand it, one of the very few in the country. My name is James Joy, and I've lived here in this wonderful neighborhood in Arlington. Tara Leeway Heights since November of 1966. I think that's coming up 46 years or something. We were all young families then. Over the years, our children grew up, and it didn't seem like new younger people were, were moving into the neighborhood. One reason, I think, was because of the skyrocketing price of houses, which have gone up 10, 20 times. But then we noticed, oh, maybe 10 years ago, We seem to be back where we were at the beginning with lots of baby carriages and little children toddling around the neighborhood. 
Our particular house is on the highest hill. It used to be called Hall's Hill. Long ago, because a retired ship captain, Captain Basil Hall, came to live here practically on the eve of the Civil War. I think we were the northernmost point in Virginia that received artillery fire, so the shells would have gone right over my house and perhaps landed in Captain Hall's farm. I think it's been a very good neighborhood, uh, a lot of close neighbors. We heard from Kathy Heinsen in Brunswick and James Joy in Tara Leeway Heights. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, and Kavitha Cardoza. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Lauren Landau and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, our door-to-door theme, No Girl, and our location theme, Turn Your Face, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, that's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be gearing up for Election Day with a show about choices. We'll go inside the machinery of political Washington and meet people trying to sway your vote with good old-fashioned snail mail. We'll find out why Latinos are comprising such an important voting block in Northern Virginia. And we'll step outside the realm of politics to meet a man who chose an unusual path after the death of his brother. When he got to the Marines, he knew what he wanted his life to be, and he just went at it full force. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.